0: Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind the scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 42. So, I was explaining Japanese iced coffee to a friend recently, an old friend from college. He was at a grocery store, and he sent me a picture of the coffee that he was going to buy. The picture showed a label that said, Charleston's Coffee Roasters, and then in big, bold letters, Colombian French Roast. Not Columbia, but Colombian, like an adjective. Grammatically, Colombian French Roast sounds more like the object is the French Roast and the supporting descriptor is Colombian, Like, Colombian is a type of French roast, instead of French roast being a type of roast for coffee from Colombia. And then all of that made me think about how confusing that label might be for someone just starting out in coffee. The coffee comes from Colombia, but is roasted in a French style in Charleston, South Carolina. I was trying to convince him to upgrade his purchase to whole beans from a shop near him. I think buying pre-ground coffee in a grocery store when you have specialty shops all around you is kind of a bummer. Especially because I know this friend is vegan, and he's vegan for ethical reasons. So if he's trying to make more ethical food choices, I mentioned that specialty coffee is more likely to provide livable wages than generic grocery store pre-ground coffee. Then he mentioned that he likes his coffee cold. He likes cold brew. So he uses a higher ratio of coffee to water, and he didn't want his coffee budget to significantly increase if he starts to upgrade and buy more expensive coffee. So that's why I mentioned that he can use less coffee if he brews it hot and then cools it with ice, like the Japanese iced coffee method. And as I was explaining the merits of Japanese iced coffee over cold brew to someone who is not in specialty coffee, I again realized how confusing it all sounded because there are so many countries involved. In specialty coffee, we care about origin. Attaching the name of the country a coffee comes from is an important part of traceability and transparency. I've mentioned in a previous episode how part of my wine training, I did a sensory class with a perfumer, and he would pass around aromas and make us identify them. When it came to vanilla, we had to describe the aroma and identify the place. We had to be able to tell him if it was vanilla from Madagascar, or Mexico, or Tahiti, or the vanillin compound. Before I learned this skill, I remember feeling like it was like a magic trick to be able to use aroma to identify the origin of something like vanilla or cinnamon kind of like a reverse fortune teller, reading the past instead of the future. The place where something comes from definitely influences its flavor, but I wonder with coffee if this chain of custody acts more like a barrier than a roadmap for new customers. By wanting to pinpoint the exact specificity of the provenance of a coffee, I think we may have lost our way. For example, there is a farm called Kilimanjaro in El Salvador, owned by Ida Batley. Coffee from Finca Kilimanjaro won the El Salvador Cup of Excellence and is a famous farm. But can you imagine being new to coffee and picking up a bag that boldly says Kilimanjaro, El Salvador? It's more likely a coffee novice knows Kilimanjaro is a mountain in East Africa than a famous coffee farm in El Salvador. And as we know in specialty coffee, how a coffee was processed is a differentiator and usually written on the label. Even though Kilimanjaro is in Tanzania, Ida uses a processing style from Kenya, the Kenya double fermentation. And then imagine you read about roasting and see it's a French roast from Charleston Roasters and it's served as a Japanese iced coffee. A Finca-Kilimanjaro-El Salvador-Kenya-style roasted in Charleston in a French style served as a Japanese iced coffee. That's six different countries, Tanzania, El Salvador, Kenya, France, United States, and Japan, to describe one cup of coffee. And maybe the most influential location, El Salvador, where the coffee is grown and processed and dried, gets dimmed among all that geographical noise. There's another farm I worked for fazenda california in brazil which is sometimes hard to talk about because it's like lucia do you mean the california coffee farm in brazil or the california coffee farm in california because i've actually worked at both anyway this isn't meant to go anywhere it's just something that came up that made me laugh the other day and i wanted to share it with you guys to see if now that you're aware of it you start to see funny combinations of locations on coffee bags And I also wanted to have kind of a a simple, lighthearted intro to what may turn out to be a dense episode. In this episode, I must warn you, it's going to get very specific. The original intent of the podcast was as a resource for coffee producers. I started listening to podcasts 12 years ago in 2010. I remember very clearly because I was living in the Bay Area and had a long commute to Napa. I would spend three hours in the car daily, and podcasts became my friends. I devoured them. So I was well acquainted with their power to communicate information. It was actually in early 2016 when it occurred to me to make a coffee podcast. In 2016, I had already been traveling a lot and working with coffee producers, and I found myself repeating a handful of the same things. Each coffee producer that I talked to about fermentation was hearing about this information for the first time, but for me, well, I was kind of bored hearing myself talk about the same things over and over again. So selfishly, I wanted to create an audio library where I could send people who were new to my work. A place where questions about over-fermentation, about bricks or yeast and bacteria, a place where all of that stuff can live. I wanted to find a way to keep sharing information, but without boring myself. Instead of talking about fermentation metabolism for the hundredth time, I could just tell somebody new to listen to episode number 15. Well, it took another three years to actually start the project, but in 2019, I finally began with that in mind. The goal of making an audio library of scientific topics that coffee producers could use to understand their coffee processing in a new way. My goal has been to serve coffee producers. My goal has always been to serve coffee producers. That's the only audience I ever thought would listen because that's who it could help. And then you guys surprise me because it turns out there are a lot of coffee intellectuals who tune in despite not being coffee producers or even being in the coffee industry. On Patreon, I hear from so many of you coffee enthusiasts getting your PhDs in totally different fields. I now think of this podcast as a podcast for coffee producers and people who like to think deeply about the things around them. And so today, we go back to our roots. This is not an episode where I tell you coffee stories or talk about philosophy. This is a deep dive into three research papers that give us an inside look at the coffee seed. This is going to get technical, but my goal is to be your guide into this often intimidating world of coffee research. If you stick with me, I promise you, you will be more educated than most of your coffee friends. All the research papers are cited in the show notes, and if you're a Patreon member, you get access to the full text before the episodes come out. Patrons were sent the articles to read so that they could better follow along. A week after this episode comes out I will do a discord live so that we can discuss any questions that you guys have together. Okay so remember in episode 39 where I made the analogy of how fermentation is like gravity, meaning that it can be explained at multiple levels. You can start with a simple understanding and then graduate to deeper levels that can sometimes contradict what you learned on your previous level. Well now we are peeling additional layers of the onion to more profoundly understand processing. To be clear In episode 39, I was talking about fermentation. And as you've already read in the title, this episode is about germination. And I don't want to confuse anyone with this metaphor. Germination is not a deeper layer of fermentation. (laughs) I repeat, germination is not a deeper layer of fermentation. The two are not interchangeable. We are not necessarily going into a deeper layer of fermentation, but we are going into a deeper layer of understanding coffee processing. And also, literally, physically going deeper into the layers of tissue, the cell layers of a coffee seed. So far, in this podcast, we've talked about flavor development through yeast and bacterial metabolisms, like fermentation. And because I personally love microbiology, that's the lens that I use. It's like wearing rose-colored glasses, but instead of rose-colored, I wear yeast-colored glasses. You know the saying to a hammer, everything is a nail? Well, I am a hammer that today is going to try very hard to not be a hammer. Or rather, I'm going to try to be a different hammer. In coffee science, there is a group of researchers who are plant biologists who believe that coffee flavor and quality comes from plant metabolisms, not microbes. These are the plant hammers. In the research papers I'm going to share with you today, one thing they all have in common is that they talk about coffee quality and flavor as if fermentation doesn't really matter. Let's take wet and dry processing, the two traditional ways to process coffee. In the introduction to the papers, the researchers explained that the quality difference between these two methods was attributed to the type of cherry quality that was used. So for the sake of simplicity, moving forward, I'm going to talk about microbe people and plant people, or more simply, microbe hammers and plant hammers. Both plant and microbe hammers agree that processing matters and that it changes the flavor of the cup of coffee. Both agree that wet process and dry-processed coffees taste different, and that they have different qualities. Both groups have the general consensus that wet process provides a cleaner cup, and therefore higher quality. But both groups disagree as to why this is the case. The plant people's explanation is that dry-processed coffee was historically inferior because all the coffee cherries were used in the process. The green cherries, underripe cherries, the overripe fruit all got mixed in with the ripe fruit coffee picker could pick all of the different ripeness levels, basically every color under the rainbow, and then put it all together in their baskets and then dump it on the drying beds. This meant that many of the lower quality cherries were lowering the overall quality by being mixed in with the perfectly ripe cherries. They said that the wet process was thought to produce higher quality coffee because in that method, since the coffee needed to be pulped, a picker had to be more careful and only pick ripe cherries. Because the underripe ones couldn't be pulped by the machine. They're too hard. And the overripe ones, the ones with insect damage, could be floated away using, using water. So the very fact of pulping, this like mechanical process, required that the cherries be more selective and that superior plant material was used in, in the first place. So the thinking among plant people was that these processes resulted in different flavors and qualities because the starting plant material was different for each process. Remember, to a plant hammer, everything is about the plant. And yet, they're not wrong. The microbe hammers agree that different starting plant material impacts the flavor and quality. But the microbe hammers say that it's because different ripeness levels have different sugar contents for the fermentation, and that different ripeness levels bring in different microbe populations for the fermentation. But as dry process started to become more selective with cherry picking, the differences in flavor persisted meaning that even if the same level of ripeness was used in both methods, the resulting coffee still tasted different. So the plant hammers agreed that the ripeness level of the cherry was not enough to explain the difference. They began to look for other reasons for the difference, again, none of them having anything to do with fermentation. If you listen to this podcast, you know we've talked about how different environments, wet or dry, hot or cold, those different environments host different microbes, and those microbes work on breaking down and fermenting the mucilage uh, around the coffee seed. And in the process, they create aroma precursors and change the flavor of the coffee seeds. Well, in none of the papers I read, the plant people acknowledge this about coffee flavor. None of them mention that dry process is heavily dominated by acetobacter and yeasts, and that wet process has more bacterial dominance, and that those microbes produce very different flavors. Acetobacter and yeast are responsible for the fruity flavors and the heavy body more closely associated with naturals and dry process, and lactobacillus is responsible for the cleaner cup and higher acidity found in wash coffees. In this podcast, we've already talked a lot about how microbes turn sugars into flavor precursors, like the entire episode 15. And sometimes, the glucose and fructose can be turned into ethyl acetate and you get a fruity grape aroma, Or isoamyl acetate, and you get the aroma of ripe banana. Or you can get ethyl palmitate, which has the aroma of balsamic vinegar. Or butyric acid that smells like cheese. The micro people have even identified an odorous compound in green coffee called pyridine, which gives the aroma of fishiness. Several years ago, I was working with a coffee producer in Aguachapan, El Salvador. Rolando from Cairo Coffee. And maybe you're like, Cairo? Like Egypt? Egypt, El Salvador? But it turns out when he named the business, he had two kids, a daughter named Carolina and a son also named Rolando. So he put the C.A. from Carolina and the R.O. from Rolando, and he came up with Cairo. Anyway, Rolando had land with coffee trees, but he didn't have a processing facility. So instead of building a new one, he bought an existing mill. The mill was large and traditional, huge swimming pool-sized coffee tanks. And before Rolando bought it, it had been abandoned for a while and was deteriorating a little bit. So he had the huge task of cleaning it up and getting it up to date. He told me that the first few batches of coffee that he produced in that mill got some complaints. He was told from his customers that the coffee tasted fishy. When he told me this, my mind went straight to a bad fermentation that could be producing pyridines. I am a microbe hammer. I looked around and my first visit to the mill, it kind of made sense. Remember, it had been abandoned for many years. The equipment was rusty, tanks were dirty, and I could imagine a colony of rogue fungus like Rhizopus oligosporus creating phenolic compounds during the fermentation and tainting the coffee. Well, it turns out the answer was much simpler. When Rolando asked around as to the history of the mill, he found out that the mill was abandoned for coffee production in the years before he bought it, and during that time, it was used to keep fish. The large coffee tanks are the perfect size to breed and keep fish. He had been fermenting his coffee in old fish tanks. This was another reminder that the simplest answer is often the right one. Here I was breaking my brain trying to remember the chemical pathways and what microbes create what flavor precursors, and the answer was that the coffee tasted like fish because they kept fish in the fermentation tanks. So that was back in the 90s. He no longer uses most of those original tanks and the ones he still uses have been resurfaced with ceramic tile and he's also bought several plastic barrels to do smaller yeast treated fermentations. Rolando is one of my star clients because he committed fully to implementing changes and shifting the majority of his coffee production from commercial grade to specialty in a few short years. Today, he and his son Andres are managing the business and I suggest you look them up if you're looking for coffee from El Salvador. Anyway, the point is that coffee research in microbiology, the microbe hammers, have very thorough research connecting environments to microbes and connecting those microbes to flavors. But the coffee research in plant biology, the plant hammers, are like, nope, that can't be it. The flavor difference must be something else. So the microbe people, like me, attribute flavor differences to what is happening in the environment and the different types of fermentation the seed undergoes but the plant people attribute the flavor differences to what is happening inside the coffee seed while it's being processed, not really anything having to do with the outside. So while the plant hammers agree that the ripeness levels of the cherry was not enough to explain the difference, they began to look for other reasons for the difference, again, none of them having anything to do with fermentation. And it's a good thing they did because our coffee world is so much richer for it. This brings us to our first research paper the one that challenged me personally to look beyond the microbes. Before this research paper, fermentation was enough of an explanation to me about the flavor differences in wet and dry processed coffees. But this paper explained the sugar problem. I've talked about this paper before in the episodes about bricks and sugar, and now we revisit it for a different purpose. In 2005, a group of researchers from Germany published a paper called Influence of Processing on the Content of Sugars in Green Arabica Coffee. Their research showed that sucrose remained mostly unchanged during processing, as if the sugar was not participating in the process. The paper demonstrates that the starting sucrose levels of coffee cherries are better correlated to the growing conditions of the plant, including altitude and variety, and that processing changes sucrose very little, if at all. However, the smaller monosaccharides like glucose and fructose change significantly from the start of processing to the end, and they differ dramatically from wet process to dry process. This establishes that wet and dry process seeds are chemically different. They are different on the outside and on the inside. The difference they found in glucose and fructose levels in wet process was up to 90% less sugar than in the dry process. And this data point, this speaks to the myth that naturals and honeys are sweeter because the sugars in the mucilage get into the seed. And this is false. Dry process is not sweeter because the sugars in the mucilage are being absorbed into the seed, but maybe because it's not losing as much sugar like it is in the wet process. To be clear, yes, dry process or natural process coffees do contain more simple sugars inside the seed than the same coffee if it undergoes a wet process, but it's not because a sugar is getting into the seed. It's just not leaving. And I say leaving with air quotes because we don't really understand the mechanisms yet. One theory is that some of the sugars are hitching a red with water out of the seed as it is drying. Because we know that sugar is hygroscopic, it's attracted to water, and as the seed is drying, it's most likely that any of those unbound sugars could leach out with the water Instead of the common myth that as coffee is drying and water is coming out, the sugar is somehow defying the laws of physics and going into the seeds. However, the researchers don't believe that this water movement theory explains the difference. Instead, they believe that germination can account for this dramatic loss in glucose and fructose. However, I do want to point out that when you read the experimental setup, they process the coffee in their wet method with a fermentation of 36 hours. And in those 36 hours, they exchange the water three times, meaning they submerge the coffee in clean water, and after a few hours, dump that water and submerge the coffee again in fresh water, and then after a few more hours, dump that water and then resubmerge the coffee in fresh water again. So that's actually a lot of water in a short amount of time, and I wonder if they would have seen as dramatic a drop in sugars if they had not changed the water at all. I believe that frequent changing of the water could be pulling out unbound sugars in the seed more than if the water had remained in in contact with the seed with the, the whole 36 hours. But that's just my opinion. That's not really what the research shows. So anyway, it seems that at some point, this method was established as a protocol for wet process. In about five papers that I've read related to this topic, every time there is a wet processed coffee, the researchers follow this protocol of changing the fermentation water three times. And this is good because then they compare their experiments to each other, they can compare the results to each other, but it's a very specific type of wet processing that is seen more often in African countries than in Latin countries. So it's just something to keep in mind. I feel like because of the way they are running the experiment, the results, the dramatic sugar drop, could potentially be exaggerated. But the point is, there is still a dramatic drop in the sugar content of green coffee seeds. Um, so instead of the sugar hitching a ride out with the water as it's, you know, constantly changing, the researchers believe that the differences are better explained with seed germination. Okay, so imagine you are a plant hammer and everything is about the plant and you're looking to explain differences. So you look at the seed and you see how much time can be involved in processing. One thing that is clear is that there is a significant time difference between wet and dry processing. Wet process can go from start to finish in three to four days, and dry processing can take three to four weeks. In the laboratory setting, the researchers got the dry process down to seven to ten days, faster than happens in most coffee farms, but still much longer than the wet process. And you think, well, seeds germinate. Maybe the flavor and quality difference comes from the different levels of germination a seed can undergo in a few days or even a few weeks. So for us coffee drinkers the story of a seed is quite simple a plant grows leaves and then grows fruit and then over the year it ripens that fruit we pick it process it roast it and drink it implied in that pathway is the idea that once the fruit is picked that's the end that over the season the plant is growing and developing but that picking the fruit somehow stops that process many of us think that picking is the end of the line But if you're a plant, the point at which the seed is picked is kind of a midway point. Because after the seed is picked, it can do the thing that the seed is supposed to do. The purpose of the seed is not to make coffee for us, it's a continuation of life. After the seed is picked, that's when it prepares for the next phase of its life, germination. The carbohydrates that are locked in the seed are food and fuel for the embryo to sprout and start a new plant. The coffee seed is like a refrigerator of sugars for the embryo to use to become a new coffee plant. One interesting thing about coffee seeds is that they are quite difficult for scientists to study. There are two main categories of seeds, orthodox seeds and recalcitrant. Orthodox seeds are capable of being dried to an internal seed moisture of less than 12% moisture content, stored at freezing temperatures, and surviving. Examples of orthodox seeds are most grains and legumes, like corn and lentils. Recalcitrant seeds are seeds that do not survive drying and freezing. By and large, those seeds cannot resist the effects of drying temperatures of less than 10 Celsius. Thus, they cannot be stored for long periods like orthodox seeds because they can lose their viability. Examples of recalcitrant seeds are avocados and mangoes. We know that we can dry coffee seeds to below 12% moisture content, but we also know that they can't be stored indefinitely. So coffee seeds are intermediate or non-orthodox. They're on the spectrum. They're not quite recalcitrant, but they're definitely not orthodox seeds. And this means for scientists to study them, they need a fresh supply, and it makes it harder to do this kind of research. The viability, the ability of the seed to germinate, that is the interesting part for this type of research, but storing seeds ruins their viability, so it can be a difficult path to balance as a researcher because as a researcher you want to be able to repeat the experiment multiple times and you want other labs to be able to repeat your experiments in in other you know very different locations so when the seed material is so volatile it can be hard to get this level of reproducibility and to ship these samples all over the world and be able to repeat these experiments but let's get back to sugar we know that fermentation can do many things But getting more sugar is not one of them, because fermentation uses sugar. It converts it into other things. So fermentation alone is not enough to explain the chemical differences in the seeds. So germination is a logical next topic to take on. However, one of the reasons I dismissed germination for a long time was because I had worked with cacao and I saw how different the cacao seeds were. Cacao is also a plant where we're more interested in the seed and not really the fruit. One curious thing about cacao, unlike coffee, is that germination is more often talked about in terms of quality. It's well known that when cacao seeds germinate, it's bad for chocolate quality. You can go to a cacao tree, harvest the pods, and once you open them, you can see that the seeds have germinated inside the pod. The first time I opened a fresh pod with germinated seeds, I thought they were diseased. The sprouted embryo tails look like worms crawling throughout the pod. On patreon i have pictures for this episode of my time working in a cacao farm in peru and i was opening pods that were already germinated and normally these would not be included in the fermentation they would be separated to have like a a lower quality uh, cacao product but this was a really small farm and this was a very small volume that they had and so in this case they were included in the fermentation even though that's not a traditional protocol Anyway, a coffee seed doesn't germinate when it's on the tree or inside of its protective cascara casing. In coffee plants, I know that keeping the cascara, the exocarp, attached suppresses the signals to germinate. As far as I knew, if the coffee cherries were still attached to the tree or if they had the skin on, they would not begin to germinate. The osmotic pressure of having a physical covering doesn't let the seeds progress to the next stage. If the seed is still covered by the cascara, it's not ideal conditions to germinate and the seed will save its energy for a time when conditions are different and it's more likely to survive into a new plant. A pulped coffee, however, is more likely to germinate because the skin has been removed and the mucilage layer has been removed, leaving the seed in a better condition to make it to the next step and waking up the embryo. However, the other reason I dismissed germination for a long time was that even though the wet process and washed coffees had the skin removed and could be signaled to germinate, or at least they weren't being suppressed not to germinate, I thought that the the time, the fermentation time was too short to really be able to have an impact because coffee seeds usually take 10 to 20 days to germinate. And I was doing a 36 to 48 hour fermentation, and then they were going to be dried. So I didn't think there was enough time to really, you know, go down this process. So when it came to dry process, I thought germination was negligible because the skin stayed on the whole time, giving the seed the signal that it was not a good time to germinate. And in the wet process, I thought germination was also negligible because the processing time was really short. But I personally came back to germination because a sugar question bothered me. How does a wet process lose up to 90% of its glucose and fructose? Where does it all go? This is where our next paper comes in. It's called Germination of Coffee Seeds and Its Significance for Coffee Quality. This was published the following year, in 2006, and has the same three main authors as the previous paper about sugar. Dirk Selmar, Gerhard Beitoff, and Sen Knopp. They believed the differences in wet and dry processing were due to the metabolic processes of the coffee seeds and decided to see if they could measure germination. To measure germination, these researchers looked at two enzyme markers. The first is isocitrate lyase. In seeds storing large amounts of fat, this enzyme is one of the first enzymes expressed during germination. This enzyme is responsible for the conversion of fatty acids into carbohydrates. The expression of isocitrate lyase, just called ICL for short, and the occurrence of its proteins are considered to determine the transition from late embryogenesis to germination. And the other marker that these researchers were following um, is beta-tubulin. Beta-tubulin is another enzyme that signals cell cycle activity to see if the embryo cells were dividing and meaning growing. So cell division shows embryogenesis, the precursor to germination. To test this, the researchers used a scalpel to literally cut out the embryo from the coffee seeds and then freeze that in liquid nitrogen and then they ground it up in this tiny mortar and pestle and they used beta-tumulin antibodies to detect the enzyme that would signal that the cells in the embryo were active. And this distinction really helped me because full-on germination seemed far-fetched, but embryogenesis, the waking up of the embryo, could definitely happen in short coffee fermentations. So this study clearly pointed out that ICL is expressed in coffee seeds during the course of wet processing, thus proving the presence of germination during wet processing. Not only did they confirm that the coffee seeds can germinate during processing, they showed that it can happen very fast. As soon as 24 hours into processing, they could detect enzymes and signals of cell activity and cell division. So this proved definitively that yes, in wet processed coffees within a 36-hour fermentation period, the coffee embryo reached a peak of activity. It was awake, or it was waking up. The highest peak was on day two of wet processing, and then activity, the enzyme signals, sharply dropped. It's like the seed sends out this flare of enzyme activity on day two and then goes quiet. But what about dry processing? The authors demonstrated that coffee beans also germinate in the course of dry processing. Since dry processed coffees take longer to process than wet, the peak enzyme activity occurs at a different time. The same isocitrate lyase peak that wet processing reached on day 2 was not seen until after a week after the start of dry processing. So just as was shown by ICL expression pattern, the same pattern was found for beta tubulin. The analysis of the cell cycle activity also demonstrated that germination processes during the course of dry processing are delayed. So that same peak that wet processed coffees reached in one to two days was reached one week later with the dry processed coffees. Despite the difference in the week, the corresponding maximum levels were relatively similar in wet and dry processed beans. Now, even this was a surprise, because the dry process still has the skin on. My expectation was that it wouldn't germinate at all. But apparently, seeds in the dry process can overcome the suppression signals from the pulp and skin still being attached. And here the researchers make an interesting distinction. They don't say that the day two wet process germination signal is the same as the day six germination signal in the dry process. Instead, they mention metabolic activity. In the case of wet process, the cell activity and metabolism is related to the embryo. But in the dry process, they believe that the metabolic activity is related to a stress response. The cells in the embryo are responding, they are active, but for different reasons. So, Just to recap, the the levels of activity are the same, so they reach like the same maximum peak in the wet process in two days as the dry process in six days, but then the researchers go on to clarify that it's not the same signal, it's not signaling for the same reasons, even though it's signaling very strongly at a very high level at two different times, but again, for different reasons. So this research made me take off my microbe-colored glasses and reconsider what I know about processing. Up until this point, most of us microbe hammers talk about coffee flavor precursors as passively diffusing into the seed. We talk about the seed as a sponge. A sponge is a fairly good analogy for a coffee seed. A sponge is porous and can take up aromas and you can wring it out and release its contents. We know that coffee seeds can absorb moisture and absorb aromas, like the case of the fishy taste in El Salvador. The fish aromas were passively absorbed by the coffee seed. So a coffee seed is like a sponge, but what is missing in that analogy is that the coffee seed is also alive and it is also changing. There is passive absorption of precursors from the fermentation, meaning flavor from the fermentation can be infused into the seed, and things like caffeine can be diffused out. But there is also an active metabolism inside the seed itself. The seed is not a neutral sponge. So us micro people need to open up our minds and include the plant view into what is responsible for coffee flavor and quality. So all this data substantiates the idea that germination processes take place in coffee seeds during processing. This is no longer a debate. And since the germination enzymes are released in such different time frames in a wet process versus a dry process coffee, this leads the plant hammers to believe that this germination event is the main difference in the processes and therefore responsible for the quality differences. If I could summarize it, the plant people basically believe that differences in different processed coffees is due to the metabolic status of the seed, meaning the pattern and the time of germination. And this is where I believe that plant people need to open up their minds and include the flavor precursors made in the fermentation into their view of coffee quality and flavor. Most of the plant research still ignores the flavor from fermentation, and they look exclusively at the seed metabolism. But they do say that more research is needed for them to say that germination is the key, and they also mention how difficult it is for them to do this type of research. I'm going to read you the researchers' own words on the matter. They say, further investigation of coffee germination during the course of processing are lacking. Indeed, numerous studies address coffee seed germination. However, nearly all of them have been conducted using coffee seeds that had already undergone the whole sequence of wet coffee processing, including drying, and then were re-imbibed. As outlined above, in these seeds, germination had already been initiated and subsequently was shut down by the drying procedure. Thus, all experiments using wet process and re-imbibed coffee seeds do not reflect the entire diversity and complexity of coffee germination, but just a revival of an interrupted metabolism, which was halted by the drying of the coffee beans. With respect to the common nomenclature used by seed physiologists, the seeds used in these experiments have to be classified as primed seeds. So this is an interesting caveat. This caveat that the researchers rarely have fresh seeds to work with reminds me of the work of Amy Dudley's lab in the Pacific Northwest Research Institute. We talked about her research more in depth in the terroir episodes in this podcast. Her lab mapped out the diversity of yeast in coffee and cacao using dried seeds as well. In both cases, the researchers are using less than ideal starting material, but in both cases, they can find incredible clues hidden inside the seeds. Trained coffee professionals can taste a coffee and, like a reverse fortune teller, identify the country of origin and the processing style. The country and the processing style leave clues that we can train ourselves to taste, like the flavor difference between Mexican vanilla and Tahitian vanilla. But what you might not expect is that it's possible to identify these coffees without even tasting them. The processed and dried seeds hold so many secrets about their past that scientists can read. With a blind sample of green coffee, the Dudley Lab can identify the origin of the coffee by looking at its yeast signature, like a fingerprint. With a blind sample, the researchers in Germany can test the levels of sugars left in the seed and tell you if it was a wet process or a dry process. I think this is really incredible that we can, you know, attack this from so many different angles. But okay, let's land this plane and let's see where we are. Let's see what we agree on. So this is what the research tells us and this is what we know is true so far. Number one, we know that wet and dry processed coffees taste different. Number two, we know that wet and dry processed coffees have different chemical compositions, meaning different levels of amino acids and carbohydrates like sugars. Number three, we know that amino acids and carbohydrates are flavor precursors. Number four, we know that wet process and dry process have different microbe environments and are very different in their processing times. Number five, We know that coffee seeds undergo germination related metabolisms during processing, and the extent of the metabolism strongly depends on the mode of processing. So, a wet processed coffee germinates at a different time than a dry processed coffee. So, we are getting a lot closer to understanding the coffee seed and where flavor comes from. However, the micro people have a very clear pathway between micro metabolisms and resulting flavor precursors, and the plant people do not yet have an answer for us about the flavor effects of germination. They say, quote, at present, however, the extent and degree of metabolic processes that occur during post-harvest processing cannot be detected in the final product, the final product being the dried green coffee. So something that is severely lacking in all of this research is a sensory component, None of the researchers took their findings to a trained panel and got scores on the coffee. All of the results are numbers on a graph, not coffee scores on deliciousness, so keep that in mind. I'm not saying that germination doesn't have a flavor effect on coffee, but so far this research isn't taking the step of going to a sensory panel, so the effects of germination quality are very preliminary. Without the sensory component, we don't know if more germination is good or bad, Is germination something a producer should encourage or discourage? Is there a sweet spot? Maybe as coffee seeds start to germinate, the embryo starts to wake up and the seed can release the bound sugars. And maybe we can interrupt that process. Like, this is where I'm dreaming for a second, so go with me. What if we can catch the moment when the seed releases the sugars meant for the embryo, but instead of letting the embryo consume the sugars, we interrupt the process by drying the seed and maybe we can avoid that 90% glucose and fructose decline that we see in wet processed coffees. I don't even know if this is possible. It's just an idea. It's kind of where my mind goes. However, even if you could prevent the sugars from being consumed, it's still not clear that it would result in a better flavor for the coffee. It might be a lot of effort for no noticeable effect. Unfortunately, I feel like this episode didn't have a lot of practical answers, but I wanted to make it as a reminder to question ourselves. I have been a yeast hammer for a long time, and it's helpful to remember there is a wide world of possibilities out there. Germination and seed metabolism is challenging how I approach processing. I'm not sure what changes I will make yet, but it's something that I had completely ignored before that needs to be considered. The same way that I was stuck on the 90% drop in sugar during wet processing, I am now stuck on the germination of dry process, meaning that even during drying, there is a germination-related metabolism. This is potentially very important for the shelf life of coffee and long-term storage. So this is something I want to explore in the next episode, germination and drying. This episode was germination and processing, but it seems like the metabolism goes on. It can go very deeply into the drying stages. So if that's something that interests you, I hope you'll join us for the next episode. And here we are, the end of another episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks to the patrons that make the show possible, and thanks to my editor and partner, Nick. You can find links in the show notes for the research cited in this episode. Did you like this episode? If so, join us for more on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. It's like having a cup of coffee with me. Patreon is where I can interact with listeners, get your feedback, and suggestions for future episodes. If you see coffee in a different way after listening to this, consider joining and helping me make more. The patrons make it possible for me to carve out time in my week to make these episodes and make them available for free to everyone else. If you enjoy listening and get value please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.